From the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Symposia. Welcome to Symposia, a new podcast from Brown Residential College at UVA. I'm Sage Tangway, the lead producer of the Community Media Initiative, and it's my pleasure to introduce one of my production assistants, Sophia. Hello, I'm Sophia Moore. I'm a third year at UVA and a resident of Brown College. Sophia, how would you describe Brown College? Well, that's an interesting question because I don't think there's really one word or even one sentence that can perfectly encapsulate Brown College. I would say it's an eclectic mix of everyone and anybody. It's a place for creativity and scholarship, but also socialization and self-discovery. And it's a beautiful place to uh, experience college and make amazing connections with people and really feel like you're getting involved with the community. The word symposia or symposium is most often used to describe a focused conference or a meeting that pertains to a specified topic. Beyond that, however, the ancient Greek use of the word often referred to a post-banquet party that hosted convivial discussion and the sharing of food, drink, and music between guests. At Brown College, we host a number of lecturers and focused discussions from inside and outside UVA but we also pride ourselves on our sense of community development and activity. We even have a specified dining room in Newcomb Hall to foster exactly the type of communion and engagement that the original use of the term symposia sparks in the imagination. At some point, we'll delve more into the intricacies of what a residential college is, but overall, the hope for this podcast is that it will serve as an archive and presentation of the programming at Brown Residential College. This first episode features a lecture given by guest Desh Gerard, an associate professor in the Department of Government at Georgetown University. First, we will hear a brief introduction from hosting UVA professor and Brown College faculty fellow, Tess Farmer of the Anthropology Department and Global Studies program, followed by Desh Gerard's presentation entitled Jim Crow Foreign Policy, White Supremacy versus Republicanism. I'm here to introduce our speaker today. Uh, this is Dr. Desh Gerard, who's an associate professor in the Department of Government at Georgetown University, where he's also affiliated with the African Studies Program and the Center for Latin American Studies, and where he also served as the director of the MA in Conflict Resolution Program from 2018 to 2021. He received his PhD from Stanford University in 2008, an MPhil from Trinity College Dublin in 2002, and a BA from Penn State in 2000. He's the recipient of both the Truman and the Marshall, uh, Mitchell Fellowships, and his research has been supported by the Political Instability Task Force, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, Georgetown University's College of Arts and Sciences and Office of the Provost, and Stanford University's Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law. He has published widely on US foreign policy and foreign aid, and his first book, Explaining Post-Conflict Re uh, Reconstruction, was published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Today, Dr. Gerard will be talking with us about his current book project on white supremacy um, as a political and economic project. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Gerard. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for that introduction, and uh, 
uh, and for such inspiring words. You're all very, very fortunate to have such an extraordinary team uh, guiding you. And I'm also just you know, absolutely honored to, that so many of you made a point to, to come to uh, listen to, my, uh, to me talk about my research and, and engage with it for a while this evening. I know you're all extremely busy, and so it's very um, special to me that you're all here. And I hope that the, as I'm talking, that you feel free to jump in if you have questions, um, because I, um, I'd love to be as interactive as possible um, as, we're, um, as, we're, as I'm sort of laying things out. And to begin, um, and, in, and in part just to get to know you a little bit, I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you think about foreign policy right now, what issues come to mind? Like, what issues are important to you? Yeah, in the back. The war in Ukraine, okay, excellent. That's a hugely important issue right now. Uh, yes? Climate policy. Climate policy, excellent. Okay, other, yeah? Trade. Trade, oh my goodness, yes, thank you. Those are just exactly, um, you know, some of the biggest issues that we could be thinking and talking about. And uh, this presentation will speak to all of those issues, to those three issues in particular. Um, and you'll see how, uh, by the end. I'm going to be talking today about a pivotal moment in U.S. history that we don't think or talk about very much, but it's pivotal and it's foundational because you'll see how it kind of feeds into all of these other issues in foreign policy that we live with and deal with today. Um, so the issue that I'm going to be talking about is the moment when the U.S. was making a decision on whether to take colonies. So we're talking about the turn of the 20th century, you know, 1898-99. And there were some people in the US who said that it should, there were some people in the US that th said that it shouldn't. And the key issue in that debate, as people, as people were talking through it, was whether it was okay for the US to rule people without their consent, right? That's at the core of what colonialism is, was ruling people without their consent. And in the end, the U.S. did decide to take some colonies uh, in that moment, but then it quickly uh, turned away from that practice. This entire process is part of the great debate and what I want to kind of get into with you um, so that you can um, uh, wrap your minds around it and how foundational this is for how we understand the world today. So this uh, moment of the great debate was fraught and it was regularly on the front pages of newspapers, right? This question about whether the US should take colonies. It engaged Mark Twain, who devoted the last 10 years of his life to the cause of, uh, as it was known at the time, anti-imperialism, right? And the, and the term imperialism, uh, colonialism, territorial expansion, those are all synonymous as I'm talking and as, it was, and as the language was used then as well. So, the great debate was about what happens at the end of the Spanish-American War. And let me just, for a second, step back. Does anybody know what happened at the, in the Spanish-American War? Yes. The U.S. ended up taking Philippines as a colony or buying it off of Spain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So, there are, there are, that's right. But the Philippines were the biggest one. Um, anybody else know anything? Yeah. Wasn't it uh, also Cuba and Puerto Rico? Excellent. So, does anybody know... Uh, how, how quickly the U.S. defeated the Spanish Empire? It took about 10 weeks. Oh, yeah, go ahead. You were going to say 10 weeks, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, so the U.S. very quickly and decisively defeated the Spanish Empire and took the Philippines, took Puerto Rico, took Guam, 
And, you know, also Cuba was the, the, a really important Spanish colony in the Caribbean, um, but the U.S., in order to go into the war, had to say that it wouldn't take Cuba. You know, to Congress, it had to say that, and that becomes part of our story later. But so as a result, it, although it took Cuba, um, it had to leave uh, Cuba to be its own independent country. But the others it acquired. And so the Americans, you know, initially saw this, this, uh, this decision as not an obvious, as not an obvious decision um, because of their history. The key thing to keep in mind about this moment is that it essentially became a, a very, very sort of fast-moving debate because of what happened on the ground. So bottom line, over the course of about a month and a half, the senators debated what they wanted to do, and in the end, the treaty passed by the two-thirds vote. So there was a treaty that ended the Spanish-American War where the president, William McKinley, agreed with Spain that he would take those territories and gave them some money for the Philippines in particular. And so now the treaty had to go through the Senate to be ratified. And the Senate needed to uh, approve by a two-thirds vote that it would accept the treaty as was written uh, or amend it. They didn't amend it. Um, and they accepted it as written, but with only one vote to spare. So it barely passed in spite of the kind of euphoric moment after the victory of the war, right? So again, this gives you a sense of how fraught it all was. And things were fast moving on the ground in the context of this debate. The treaty only passed because the expansionist side doled out lots of patronage, um, you know, to buy, essentially to, to buy the votes of the other side, right? Granting them uh, big positions in government in the future or, big, uh, or being able to grant big positions to other people. Um, so it, there was some kind of dirty politics involved to make it pass. Okay, so is everyone with me so far on, on that process? And so the, the treaty passed, um, but the overall sense was that this was only the beginning for U.S. empire, right? So even though it was kind of a, 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 you know, a hotly debated moment and it barely passed, in the United States people thought, okay, so now this is only the beginning, and across the world people had the same sort of view. I got interested in this moment in part because I'm from Puerto Rico, and I grew up there, and, I, uh, you know, and there you... Um, you hear about the Spanish-American War a lot. And as a Puerto Rican, uh, you live with the consequences of the choices that were made in this moment. But also, as an American citizen, um, I, I think this moment is fascinating because it framed the debate that we've gone on to have about intervention, foreign intervention by the United States anywhere in the world since, going all the way up through Afghanistan, Iraq, even Ukraine. So, um, so I found this you know, extremely important. And the way that I approached it is by doing what's called a, a textual ethnography of the materials like the congressional record uh, from the debate, the, uh, the magazines, newspapers, uh, all kinds of material from that time. And, uh, and so the textual ethnography uh, is a process to try to reconstruct those words in the way they would have been understood back then. And so that requires also reading a lot of the secondary literature to have a really strong handle on the context. I read all the literature I could possibly get my hands on, and most of it comes from history and diplomatic history, because in political science and international relations and uh, the study of American foreign policy, uh, we generally begin with World War I, which is part of why we don't even see this first great debate, part of why it gets so overlooked. So I discovered three big puzzles. I basically encountered three big puzzles through all of this research, which is what I'm going to spend the first half of the rest of this talk um, uh, telling you about. 
And then I'm going to spend the second half sort of puzzling out of them and telling you what the implications are and how they relate to trade and, and the other things that uh, you've mentioned. The first puzzle is why not amass more colonies after the great debate, right? As I mentioned, there was a lot of enthusiasm from the perspective of international relations. It's odd, right? Because in international relations, has anyone taken an international relations course yet? Yes. Kind of. It was a summer program. Um, Oh, fascinating. And fascinating to do that with uh, sort of an international uh, group of students. Um, yeah, so from the perspective of international relations theory, you know, rising powers expand, right? When you look at countries without proper nouns, rising powers expand. They expand to buffer their borders. They expand to extract resources, to project strength. And the United States in this moment was booming economically. It was um, the uh, sort of textbook definition of a rising power, right? So you would expect it to expand, looking at it from the perspective of IR theory, and expand in a big way. So that's one of the reasons it's puzzling that the US you know, only uh, grabbed those specific islands. Um, also, there were sort of a number of contingent factors that were steeply pushing the US in the direction of expansion. Um, one is that it was popular among great powers, right? It's not unpopular in a way that it might be today. Um, you had you know, Great Britain, Germany, uh, the Japanese, right? I mean, it was what it meant to be a great power, was to take colonies. And on top of that, it was really popular domestically. You know, as you see here from this poster from the uh, uh, Greater America Exposition, um, later the, in that year after the uh, Senate ratified the treaty, they're very proud and excited of their colonies. They have their first colonial exhibit, and you have the United States holding on to the world and a sash that says, the white man's burden, right? So there's, um, you know, a lot of ideology. Um, you know, for some it was about the white man's burden, a lot of missionary groups um, publishing about how important it was to do missionary work now in, in places like the Philippines. In general, people talked about bringing the blessings of civilization to these islands. So for some it was about identity, for some it was about commerce, you know, lots of export of manufactured goods from that booming economy. There were a lot of reasons for it and for, you know, kind of wanting to expand and wanting to expand more, despite all these reasons, material and ideological, the U.S. didn't take more colonies. And so I want to put to you the question of why not? Why do you think the U.S. didn't, despite everything that, uh, that I just laid out? Yes. Uh, kind of from an ideological sense, America also started off as colonies that were not very appreciative of the fact that they were colonies. They did not claim to actually be colonies. Exactly. It's American exceptionalism, right? Has, have you all kind of heard this phrase tossed around? It's the idea that Americans are special, and at the core of that is this notion of anti-imperialism, which we're going to criticize a lot in a minute, but, um, you know, this notion of American exceptionalism. But that is, you know, if you ask people, on, it's sort of the, the, the gut response is that, um, well, it's, you know, Americans are different in the world. We're not like the other countries. Our proper nouns really matter. Uh, so at the core, it's this um, notion of anti-imperialism. So that's why it only did it a little bit in that moment, right? That raises this puzzle then of what, then why take any at all, right, in the first place? And that's what we're going to move to next. As you said, um, the anti-imperial tradition dated back to the Revolutionary War when the U.S. broke away from the British Empire, right? There's all this language uh, of, the, of the importance of uh, of, of not having a monarch ruling you, of not being a colony of another uh, power, of being able to rule yourself. 
the notion of consent of the governed became very big then, and sort of we've hanged on to that notion ever since, you know, cultivating it and reinforcing it over time. And as you see in this cartoon, from the moment where the great debate was happening, right, crying, um, and, uh, you know, kind of uh, with some themes of the Revolutionary War, crying over the break of that tradition. As it says, you know, in the Declaration of Independence, right, this, um, this notion that was that sort of at the essence of anti-imperialism, that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. The notion is that government is illegitimate if it, uh, if it, um, uh, if it lacks that consent, right? So without that consent, you're not a legitimate government. And that notion is what at the time, and, and still in many respects, uh, we call uh, republicanism with a small r, right? That's when you're respecting the rights of citizens to self-rule. And, um, and the tradition tells us that part of what makes the U.S. exceptional is that Americans respect this right uh, at home and abroad, right? And so remember Woodrow Wilson in World War I telling the world that uh, the U.S. stood for making the world safe for democracy, right? So he was justifying his policy by reference to this tradition of anti-imperialism and promising the world that once Americans hopefully won uh, from his perspective, they wouldn't take colonies, Right, so it became an important message also to send to the world. This Republican narrative tells us that all the major acquisitions of, that the U.S. got engaged in since the very beginning had to be put on a path to statehood. Right, so when uh, Thomas Jefferson made the decision to take the Louisiana, you know, to do the Louisiana Purchase, it wasn't even a serious idea to um, uh, think of turning that territory into a colony of the US, of the US right? So the, the key was, um, you know, we're not gonna rule the people in that space without their consent, right? We need to put them on a path to statehood. And that's what the US continued to do with all of its acquisitions. If it didn't want to put the territory on a path to statehood, it didn't take the territory, right? And that was um, a lot of the logic that guided acquisition all the way through to 1898. Do any of you know uh, who, who was acquired, which country, yeah, oh, yes, go ahead. No, you're right, yeah, no, that, you're absolutely right. So Hawaii was, um, you know, uh, uh, had been annexed previously and there were some complicated uh, politics, but Hawaii was, um, was uh, annexed and put on a path to statehood in 1898 by the, by the United States. And that was six months before the Great Debate. So, that makes it just all the more puzzling. Like, why not do the same thing in 1899, right? Um, why acquire suddenly territories with the intention of colonizing them? And I'll tell you what some of the um, best in the literature tells us, that it was an accident. Why, why do they say that? Um, because it's a way to kind of be consistent with this notion of anti-imperialism, right? At the core, we're anti-imperial, so this was an accident, just taking these as colonies. You know, like you're uh, on a diet and you slipped, right? So it's like this, um, you're um, at, you know, there's this great uh, enthusiasm around all of the, uh, uh, the, the big quick victory over the big Spanish empire, right? It was an accident, you slipped. And uh, um, I think that explanation is really odd um, for a number of reasons. Uh, first, if you look at the congressional record, you see how just incredibly aware 
the senators were and the leaders, I mean, from all of the leaders across American society debating this, um, they were so aware that they were making a monumental decision that would affect generations. One even called it the most important decision the U.S. had ever faced, right? So it's hard, hard to imagine that they just sort of stumbled into making this decision. Secondly, um, the U.S., and I know I don't have to tell you, has a long history of ruling people without their consent, right? Native Americans, women didn't have a right to vote. Um, this is the moment of the Jim Crow South where uh, black Americans were actively uh, disfranchised, but also this is the country of slavery. So we, had, we were comfortable doing this domestically uh, for a really long time, so why would we be uncomfortable doing it abroad? Right? How important is republicanism really? Like, How good an explanation is this really for what was going on at the time? And that actually brings us to the third puzzle, which is where that question got even a little bit more confusing because the very group of people who was most explicitly arguing for the right of self-rule of the people of the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Guam were the Southerners, the white Southerners, the senators, in the US Senate, when they voted on the treaty, you see the red is where both senators voted against. So that's where you have the heaviest anti-imperialism. The green is where both senators voted in favor, and the yellow is one voted in favor and one voted against, right? So the opposition's all in the South. You'd think that the South would have been the most pro-imperial, right? The, the least concerned with governing people without their <laughs> consent, given how they were governing the Jim Crow South, as I mentioned, um, given that they had been pro-expansion before the Civil War, right? They tried to annex Cuba like four times. You know, they wanted more slave states. Um, and, uh, and, and also given that they had argued, right? When you look at uh, the, the, their logic of white supremacy, their longstanding logic, was that inequality was legitimate, that it was a good thing, and that only some people had the consent of the governed, that only some people had that inalienable right. They even uh, not only argued this, but they literally fought for it, right, in the Civil War. And it wasn't just their um, sort of fathers of these senators who fought for it, they themselves fought for it. So we're talking about former Confederate soldiers who are arguing for the consent of the governed, that right in the, uh, for the people of color in the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Guam. Um, so very strange. And it gets stranger because those very senators, uh, they invoked Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address. They used the language of the North to make this argument. So, for example, um, Senator John Daniel of Virginia said, uh, there was no sentence which was uttered about our civil war, which probed down uh, deeper into the nature of things than the sentence which Abraham Lincoln uttered when he said that this republic could not remain half free and half slave. This republic cannot be created half free and half dependent. Similarly, uh, Donaldson Caffrey of Louisiana, when this fair country was dredged in the blood of brethren, uh, engaged in bitter strife, Abraham Lincoln proclaimed that this was a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Right, so is this odd? This is sort of confusing. Some of these uh, Southerners had even uh, enslaved people before the Civil War. You know, so this is, uh, again, so very, um, uh, very strange. And it was laughable, right, to a black-run uh, newspaper at the time, the Washington Bee, right, in an editorial they entitled The Consent of the Governed, 
They said, to hear the Southern anti-expansionists talk about the unwisdom of accepting the Philippines without the consent of the governed, one would think that they were the most ardent and honest supporters of Republican government, wherein every citizen, whether white or black, is accorded the full and free exercise of the right of suffrage. It is time for the world to have a hearty laugh, right? So it's not just us looking historically, it's at the time, you know, it was uh, uh, very obviously strange. So uh, those are the three puzzles that I encountered for which I couldn't find satisfying answers in the literature. Um, but then I discovered a logic uh, hiding in, in the politics of the period that serves as a, a good, solid answer that kind of made sense of all of these three puzzles. And making sense of why that, uh, of the th sort of the third puzzle first helps us understand uh, the other two. So to understand the thinking of the senators and the, the leaders, the white elites in the South in that moment, it's really important to understand the political economy of the South at that time. What you need to remember, if you remember one thing about the political economy of the South, is cotton. You know, cotton was king before the Civil War, and cotton became king again after the Civil War. And the way that it became uh, king again was through an institution called sharecropping. And it was an institution that Henry Louis Gates Jr. has called, you know, the second slavery. And the way that it worked was that, you know, that the uh, white landlord would offer a plot of land to the black tenant, and uh, the black tenant and his family would live there and would grow crops, which then some portion of that crop yield would go to the landlord. But the tenant would also have to buy the farm machinery, the uh, farm implements, seed, fertilizer, uh, would have to buy food to feed his family, and would have to do that from the landlord or from a local merchant. And in, in the end of the season, when the landlord totaled up all the costs versus the crop yield, invariably, the tenants found themselves in debt. Could have been because of a bad harvest or high interest rates, um, but also because uh, the landlords were, off they often lied. Right, And so what this added up to is that then the black tenants were stuck there working for the landlord, working off these debts. And again, the crop that we're talking about is cotton. Through this system of this second slavery, cotton production exponentially exceeded its pre-Civil War production. So it uh, generated extraordinary profits and the white elites uh, were very focused on maintaining the system, the second slavery. It was very, very important, right, to maintain their profits. And they were concerned about two threats. One was the potential rise of black political power, which would end the sharecropping, right? And the second would be an intervention from the North. And that would increase, presumably, black political power. And why? Would white Southerners fear that black Southerners would win elections if the army protected their right to participate? The reason was in their recent history, because that's what happened during Reconstruction when the army administered elections in the South. Right, so you had the Civil War, and especially for the students, uh, for anyone who might not be from the United States and didn't get this, uh, the details of the history, I won't go into it, but there was a Civil War, and when it ended, the North, which won the Civil War, came to the South and uh, with the Army tried to uh, work on the same kinds of reconstruction activities that we have seen recently in, like, in, in the state building efforts of Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, they're actually remarkably similar and part of the effort involved you know, helping uh, integrate into society the four million 
freed people who had uh, been enslaved. In that process, the army was protecting the notion of free and fair elections, was administering elections. And in a very recent study from political science, uh, we saw documented that we're geolocating the troops where they were stationed in those districts, you saw more victories for um, black southerners in the political process. All in all, during Reconstruction, 3,491 uh, black southerners uh, won elected or, appoint or appointed positions. And 15 were elected to the U.S. House of Representatives from seven of the 11 Confederate states. Two were elected uh, U.S. senators you know, from Mississippi. You know, black Southerners were a huge proportion of uh, most of the uh, districts of the states, if not the majority. So, of course, there are free and fair elections. I mean, it's just re remarkable because black Southerners had been enslaved for 250 years. And as soon as emancipation comes... They organize, they campaign, and they win political office. They are participating and, uh, and reconstructing the South. Among the, main, the many casualties of um, when this ended was the history itself, right? This isn't the history um, that uh, many, of, many of us, even to this day, hear when we hear about the Civil War and Reconstruction. So what happened to kind of end this process, end this um, uh, you know, incredibly, incredibly politically rich and dynamic process was that white Southerners, they, they, they couldn't, they couldn't uh, live with it, right? They couldn't stand the idea that the people they had formerly enslaved were, were governing them. And it's an outrageous logic, but they viewed themselves as being under colonial rule of the North. They viewed the army as being an occupying force. And what they did was launch what they viewed, again, outrageously, as an anti-colonial insurgency, which was the Ku Klux Klan. And the Ku Klux Klan engaged in some of the most awful terrorism that you could imagine uh, over the course of the years of Reconstruction. They assassinated black, black office holders. There was a lot of uh, rape involved in their, in, in, uh, how they, in, in their political violence. They massacred black Southerners. They intimidated people, to say the very least. You know, at moments, we even had uh, black Southerners and their allies uh, sleeping in the woods to, to flee the violence, the potential violence that they thought was, might be coming to their homes. I mean, so it was a horrific time. And from the North perspective, this was a little bit like what it was for us in Afghanistan very recently, right? It's like you have this insurgency that's persistent, that's longstanding, that sometimes you can counter, but by and large, it kind of keeps um, you know, hitting you, hitting you, and in the end, you're just, you're just kind of tired out of it, and you withdraw. And that's what the North did. And just like when we left Afghanistan, you, you know, when was the last time you saw Afghanistan in the front pages? Right? The North also looked away, didn't have you know, much in the way of interest about what was going on in the South. The South got home rule, got the North kind of to look away, and quickly got to cementing what's known as the Jim Crow order. And um, to put it, uh, you know, to, to summarize it succinctly in the sort of the beautiful words of Du Bois, um, the enslaved went free, stood a moment, a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again towards slavery. Democracy died, saving the hearts of black folk, right? So this is the end of that, uh, of, um, in some sense, how Reconstruction ended, though whether it even ended, right, is sort of a, an important question in itself.
So the Jim Crow order, and this is, we're getting to the foreign policy part, so you see how all of this um, very powerfully connects. This is, um, you know, Tess mentioned this was uh, about white supremacy and that that's the focus of this book. White supremacy, Jim, the Jim Crow order is a form of white supremacy. It's a political, economic, and social system that exploited, disempowered, and marginalized black Southerners for the benefit of the white elites to protect that second slavery. The fact that uh, uh, white Southerners prevented the reemergence of black political power with the Jim Crow system is well known. Right. I mean, if you hit it, it might not be what you hear in maybe high school history classes. But if you look just a little bit in the kind of scholarly work that's been done, um, you know, you really it, I mean, this is just just really well known. What's not well known is the way in which white Southerners kept the army out of the South. And they did this by launching what the New York Times called as of the late 1870s, a crusade against the army. And they did this in Congress. Every time a bill came up to expand the size of the army or to give it domestic authority, the Southerners would fight this. They fought it in the House, they fought it in the Senate, and they won. They, virtually, they won virtually every time. And why did it keep coming up even to use the army domestically <laughs> during this time? Um, the, you know, as I mentioned, the US was rapidly industrializing. There were tons of strikes and riots all over the country. Um, because of unsafe, unfair working conditions. And the industrial magnates, the governors, were calling the, the federal government and saying, please send the army to help us put down the, this riot or this strike or whatever it might have been. And so, and a lot of uh, cities, like the New York, in fact, in the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune, you see them uh, sort of glorifying the work of the army. And for Northerners, that's just, you know, the, the army put down the riot, the protest. That's what this image is of, is of that, uh, the army doing that. Um, for Southerners, they see that language and they're terrified because the idea of the army being used domestically is exactly what they just uh, fought against, right? And so from their perspective, they're seeing it through the prism of our second slavery is vulnerable anytime the army is deployed domestically. And so they uh, fought very hard to keep the army small and out of domestic politics. And suddenly, the Spanish-American War breaks out, the US wins, they're faced with this question of acquiring these islands and the idea that the US would become a colonial power. And what they immediately saw that, that this would bring about and immediately saw it because they were looking through the lens of the Jim Crow order and the second slavery, they saw that this would lead to a big military because you need a military if you're, use, if you're colonizing people, right? If you're uh, ruling people without their consent. So they said, you know, this is a recipe for a large standing army and an army that, for which there will be a precedent uh, that, it's, that it can be used domestically. And it's just a short jump from using it in the Philippines or Puerto Rico and then using it in South Carolina or Alabama. And so this is, uh, you know, so, so they believe that imperialism would create this pressure and some even viewed imperialism as an excuse for a large standing army that could be used domestically. And whether that's actually true or not is, is much less important than the fact that they really believed uh, this and, and said this repeatedly. To the Southern elite, you know, for example, uh, John Daniel, again from Virginia, he said at the beginning of his remarks during the great debate in, in the Senate on the treaty and on acquiring and why he, he, we shouldn't acquire those islands, he said, like birds of a feather, the treaty and a great standing army walk into the halls of Congress hand in hand, one behind and close upon the heels of the other. 
right? So they were really seeing these uh, issues as, as tightly intertwined. Uh, Senator Money of Mississippi, there will not be many decades before the policy that is now applied to the Philippines will be brought upon the American citizen himself. <laughs> and you see this all over the Southern press, right? So the Age Herald of Alabama, it's the Republican policy to build up a tremendous standing army in this country that it may be used at home when they need it to intimidate voters and to keep the Republican Party perpetually in power. And in Arkansas, it's so easy to put the army to work regulating the people, encroaching here and there, threatening the civil administration, and gradually undermining government by the people. Right, so Southerners oppose this. They also presented an alternative. They said, you know, we don't need colonies to be benefiting economically. What we need is maybe a small tract of land so that we can use that to set up a coaling station for our ships as they travel across the world. And maybe uh, we want to emphasize open trade among the great powers, right? Because a lot of great powers would take a colony and then just exclude everyone else when they were trading with that colony. So let's emphasize open trade. Just those, that's it. No colonies, just do these two kinds of things. I would just say uh, em empirically that um, senators representing the states that received more reconstruction troops were less likely to vote for imperialism. Um, you know, I created a model um, as, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of a statistical analysis and found that, you know, what you have on the x-axis is troops per 1,000 people, and on the y-axis is the probability of a yay vote by the senator. And as the troops increased, the reconstruction troops like 35 years before the great debate vote, which is what you have on the y-axis, you know, the reconstruction troops, their presence predicts whether, how likely you were to vote for the treaty. So more reconstruction troops, you are less likely to vote for the treaty, likely because you know, you the, uh, there's a persistence to the memory of what happened, right? So this is uh, you know, more evidence sort of about what's uh, going on. So revisiting the puzzles as we're kind of now moving to, to uh, conclude, um, why did the South oppose imperialism? Because imperialism threatened, uh, threatened that second slavery. Why take any colonies at all? For material interests, right? Not an accident. Why not amass more colonies? Henry Cabot Lodge, who was the leader of this in the Senate of the expansionist side, said that the line of opposition stood absolutely firm, to my great astonishment. It was the closest, hardest fight I have ever known, and probably we shall not see another in our uh, time where there was so much at stake. Um, so it was a very, very difficult fight. And then after that fight, and they got their way, American colonization of the Philippines became a nightmare. A nightmare for the Americans, a nightmare, even worse nightmare for the Filipinos. About three quarters of a million Filipinos died uh, in the course of this war, about 4,200 Americans. It was horrific. So that affected uh, people's uh, sense, policymakers' sense of just how costly this was. And then you get the outbreak of the Boxer Rebellion in China, which is when the Chinese uh, group of uh, Chinese people were rebelling against imperial powers, encroaching upon their territory, dividing it up the way you uh, see it up here. And the U.S. played a role in putting it down. And the president, the same President McKinley, who had been in charge in Puerto Rico when, when uh, ending the Spanish-American War and, and uh, acquiring these um, territories, he said he, he, he was interested in maybe a slice of, the ter of territory in China, but he didn't pursue it. Why? Domestic opposition was a big part of it. And seeing the outbreak of how badly things were already going in the Philippines, even though this was just a few months after 
uh, the treaty was signed and colonization had started was already um, you know, sending a message that maybe this uh, was not the right way to go. So in combination, those two things played a big role in the minds of policymakers. Same you know, in 1904, Teddy Roosevelt, if you know anything about his biography, you know that he was uh, an incredible proponent of expansionism uh, during the 1890s and during the uh, Great Debate. But once he's president, he gets opportunity after opportunity to annex territory, and he says no, including the Dominican Republic. You know, and he said instead that you know, he felt, uh, quote, about the same desire to annex Santo Domingo, is what it was uh, known as then, as a gorge boa constrictor might have uh, to swallow a porcupine wrong end to. So with his sort of trademark colorful language, um, he's uh, saying he feels very strongly um, against the, the notion of annexing the, the Dominican Republic. And why, again, domestic opposition, he thought Congress would have his head, and uh, the awareness of the, of the costs. So why not amass more colonies? One factor was that opposition and the nightmare that they were experiencing in the Philippines. The final sort of uh, conclusion, which is um, maybe the most interesting part, um, it's, you know, there's a number of, of questions that this research raises. Um, and one, it's about, you know, like we, we uh, saw in, in 2020, the murder of George Floyd, and nationally spent a lot of, uh, of time uh, reflecting on how the uh, racism was embedded in virtually all of our institutions. What this research is aiming to do is add to that process um, uh, a, re a reflection on how these race dynamics, how racism influences our foreign policy and is influenced by our foreign policy. You know, so that's what this project is showing us, right? That in an attempt to protect the second slavery that had big implications uh, for the foreign policy then and the foreign policy to this day um, because the the imperialism by other means that was initiated after the great debate is the same type of imperialism that we have to this day. And uh, the same type of it's the foreign policy that we use to this day. Um, so it raises the question then of why is history repeating itself, right? You have this image of Afghanistan that some of you may remember from last uh, uh, August the iconic picture of the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam doesn't quite show you the nightmare in the Philippines. I'm not comfortable showing those um, uh, horrible photos of uh, uh, all of the death and destruction. But it does show us, um, you know, there's this now trite saying, right? Like, learn your history or you're doomed to repeat it. Um, and we saw the same dynamics in Afghanistan and Iraq that we had already seen in, in, in uh, Vietnam and the Philippines. And so part of what I'm hoping this research does is um, you know, show that if we have a better understanding of the systems that are actually driving the choices we make, we can make better choices, right? So not just learn the history, the place names, you know, go to the, uh, the monuments, the parks, and, and learn what happened, but like really dig into maybe the parts that are not at first visible, maybe some of these hidden politics to find out what systems were driving the choices, and then we might make better decisions that might avoid all of these uh, disasters. Third, I've wondered if we've been asking the wrong question. So the great debate, as I mentioned, framed how we talk about intervention, you know, going back to the notion about uh, Ukraine and where or how to intervene, right? Um, should we intervene or let them go uh, their own path? 
the quiet part these days is should we intervene and, and, and help them become more like us, right? That's kind of what people have in mind when intervening, uh, you know, certainly like in Afghanistan and in Iraq, when you talk to people involved in the aid projects, right, and bringing democracy and capitalism and good governance and all that, all that stuff, um, you know, so that should we help them in that sense or should we let them go their own path? And of course, when we help them, we get like the pictures that you saw on the earlier slide. Um, and when we don't, you get like Rwanda in 1994 or Syria very recently, right? So no matter how we answer that question that was framed by the great debate, we get horrible results, right? So we're devastated and ashamed by this, right? And for me, like really kind of profound because I spent the first half of my career, as, um, as Tess mentioned, working on foreign aid and figuring out ways to make aid better. And then suddenly I, I kind of stepped back and thought, you know, this is like moving the deck chairs on the Titanic. Embedded in everything we do with foreign aid is a deeper underlying system. And if we don't focus on that system, we're just going to continue replicating the problem. You know, this whole thing about history repeating itself. So the question that I think we uh, could be asking, and I'd be curious, maybe you have uh, your own better questions as well, is, you know, what systems, international financial, global security, what systems are we participating in that puts those countries of the global south in a position that we wouldn't accept for ourselves? Right? Because when we think about climate, somebody mentioned climate in the beginning, the global south stands to lose the most very quickly, though everybody stands to lose enormously. Right? And I, I suspect that a generation from now will look at these dynamics and will be, we'll just be astonished you know, and that we talked about these countries in the global south as so-called weak states with, you know, uh, bad governance and all of these things. You know, not kind of realizing, you know, how, how much we're shaped by this discussion that happened at the turn of the 20th century, even though we're not being as explicit. So I think it's really important to, to think about that. And this also then connects to the notion of trade and the trade barriers we put up. Finally, what does the research imply for America as a city on a hill? So the story that I've told you can challenge America's story about itself, and um, it questions our narrative about exceptionalism and about the kind of great power that we have been. And my, my hope is that the presentation has complicated your view, um, you know, from the view you had coming in, if it wasn't already complicated. And also that, um, that it can help us understand what Du Bois was trying to tell us you know, I mentioned Woodrow Wilson, World War I, making the world safe for democracy. He responded to that. Du Bois responded to that. And he responded with this. He said, it's curious to see America, the United States, looking on herself as a moral protagonist. No nation is less fitted for that role. For two or more centuries, America has marched proudly in the van of human hatred. Instead of standing as a great example of the success of democracy, America has taken her place as an awful example of its pitfalls and failures so far as people of color are concerned. Those poignant words, they're uh, hard to read, and I think they're really important to sit with uh, so that we can make better decisions uh, moving forward. Thank you. Subscribe to Symposia wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about Brown College at the University of Virginia, visit our website, browncollege.virginia.edu or find us on social media.